Hello and welcome to the 21st Century Leadership Podcast. I'm Brett Sadler and in this series I'm exploring how leaders need to respond to the challenges and changes of our times. For over a year now I've been recording conversations with top leaders and leadership thinkers and throughout this series we've been delving ever deeper into some of the profound shifts that are going to shape the new leadership landscape in the years ahead. Each episode I look back at what we've covered previously and as we come to the end of this first series it seems like we've come a long way together. It was great to talk with Paul Lindley last time, an entrepreneur who has built global business and is now focusing on leading social change. But you don't need to step outside of business to do important work. And today I'm with Richard Barrett discussing what it means to be a conscious leader and how this relates to building a conscious organisation. This links right back to episode one. Do you remember Pippa Malmgren talking about how the 21st century boardroom needs to be the conscience of the organisation? Well, back to today. Let's just talk about Richard. I first became aware of Richard about 15 years ago when I came across his book, Liberating the Corporate Soul, Building a Visionary Organisation. Such brilliant thinking and ideas. Something else that I love about Richard is his sense of fun, mischief even. Let's hear what he has to say. Today's guest is Richard Barrett, who many of you will know from his copious writing, uh, has written extensively on leadership, organisation and consciousness and in particular how we need to raise our level of thinking to cope with the challenges of the 21st century. So Richard, tell us a little bit about how you came to go on this journey. Ah, Well, you know, in some ways I think I've always been on it but it wasn't until I was uh, in my mid-40s, which is uh, you know, the self-actualization stage is like, you know, typical. When you get to the mid-40s, something's going to happen if you're not careful. And it did. I was a very successful engineer working at the World Bank. And uh, I suddenly was bored with my career and realized that um, uh, when I was 17, I thought I heard my soul say uh, transportation. But actually, it said transformation. And so I realized I had to change my whole <laughs> <life>. lyric. I was <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said to me, you've been living a misspelt life. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, it took me, from that moment on, I decided, it, I decided, first of all, I decided to write a book called A Guide to Liberating Us All. And um, that was in 19, I published it in 1995. It took me five or six years to get out of the World Bank because I had a very, you know, I had a good salary, tax-free, and... Um, and if I'd stayed another 10 years, I would have had a, you know, a six-figure tax-free pension. Well, my, my friends said, you know, you're absolutely crazy. You know, you're going out to do something that you've got no qualifications for and you've got no experience in and nobody knows you. Nobody has <laughs> 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 ever heard of you. So, you know, bit cra- I said, well, I can't help it. It's what I have to do. And so anyhow, I, that's what I did. And. I say, I was around 52, I think, when I finally left the World Bank and started the work that I've been doing for the last um, uh, 22 years. Yeah. Um, and I started what's now known as the Barrett Value Center. And then last year, I started the Academy for the Advancement of Human Values. It's been quite a journey, um, but it's been fantastic because it's been, I, I'm doing the work I love to do. And that is so important. And it's the work I came to do. And I get very inspired and I feel very connected to my soul and I'm always getting, you know, for the last 10 years, I've been getting information 
I call them downloads. They usually occur about three o'clock in the morning. This morning I had one at three o'clock. I, I wrote for an hour at three o'clock this morning with this stuff mm -hmm. that just kept coming to me about my new book, my 13th book called um, uh, Worldview Dynamics and Global Consciousness Indicators. And that's been what it's been like for the last 10 years or so. Uh, one book after another, a book every year and, um, and a, a deep, deep, interest in not only deep personal development i call it ego soul dynamics but also in societal development um, and uh, the other end of the spectrum and, and meanwhile barrett value center uh, my old company keeps on working in the space of organizational development um, and measuring which is what that company does it really maps values to set levels of consciousness and helps organizations to grow and learn and grow so anyhow that in a nutshell is my little story yeah i could make it much longer but um, you know, <laughs> that's, so, so, uh, richard what was the, the the catalyst that kind of um made you change that direction oh, uh, before you answer that I'd, I'd just like to kind of pick up actually on what you said about um in your 40s and you got gone into the self-actualization phase which I, I, I think is a really important thing to reflect on because so often we hear of people at that stage considering their life re-evaluating their life and and it's trivialized by being called a midlife crisis um, yeah I never call it a midlife crisis yeah. I think midlife crisis is something uh, is uh, somewhat different and can occur at any time but it does get labeled that way um but i i, I you know in the model i have i've got seven stages of psychological development and you know the and the um, fifth stage is self-actualization and it occurs in the 40s and um it is um it, it depends how you define midlife crisis it was defined i think by a canadian fellow um, I looked it up once. Um, gosh, I've forgotten his name. But uh, it can, in the way that I talk about it, it's, it's a part of the soul activation. It's about finding meaning and purpose, but for the soul, it's about self-expression. Now, that's not a midlife crisis. A midlife crisis is somebody who, uh, oh, one example is, you know, a man who is... Um, in his late 40s or 50s, not very happily married, um, you know, is, is, wants to prove his manhood and so finds other women to go with. I mean, that's, that's a midlife crisis. Uh, what I'm talking about is soul activation and it's quite different. Right, okay, yeah, cool. So um, back to what was the catalyst that uh, set you off on that path? Oh, easy, boredom. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I, I, you know, I, I actually love my job. I, I travel the world um, helping governments build urban transport plans. And I worked at the World Bank and I totally loved it. And then except like around 43 or 44, I thought, you know what? I've done all of this. It doesn't feel right. And gradually I began to realize that I'd lost the zest for my chosen career mm -hmm. and frankly i wasn't interested anymore uh, but i still had to plot on unfortunately 
uh, within a year or so, I changed jobs in the World Bank and I had a more interesting job working in the, uh, for the Vice President of an Environmentally Sustainable Development. He was a, it had been a directorship up to that point, but he was, this was the first Vice President. He built a, a whole unit on Environmentally Sustainable Development and, I, and I, was, I got the job of his assistant, which was very interesting. And then I got another job inside the World Bank. Um, title was sort of values coordinator, but I was the bank spent two years looking at values, and and you know I was Mr. Values, and that was uh, by that time I'd finished my book, Guides Liberating Your Soul, and I started on my second book, which was called Liberating the Corporate Soul, and um, and actually that in the end was my passport out of the World Bank because I invented this way of mapping values and measuring consciousness in organizations and individuals and in leaders. And that led me to start up Barrel Values Center in 1997. And we haven't really looked back since. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I first became aware of you, was through that work and the liberating corporate soul. And something that stood out to me in that book that you wrote in the 1990s is that you said, in the 21st century, the soft stuff is destined to become the hard stuff. Would you like to explain a little bit more about how you came to that conclusion back then? Yeah, um, I, uh, I mean, although soft stuff was always hard, I, would, I don't think that's the exact quote, but anyhow, you hit the nail on the head almost. Um, you know, the, the um, I've always said that soft stuff is really hard actually because it gets down into the emotional sub layers of your subconscious and your unconscious, and, and you have to face up to questions like, Who am I? Uh, why am I here? Why can't I get on with this person? You know, and then you get to, well, wait a minute, what am I projecting onto these people, etc., etc. Yeah. And so um, it requires deep internal work, which can be quite painful. I mean, you know, if it's really, if we learned a lot of fear-based beliefs when we were young, during the first three stages up to the age of 24, um, you know, we might have to see a psychotherapist in order to uncover what's blocking us and most of us don't have you know that deep issues but we do have issues and we need coaching and we need to understand that in many ways we create the reality we experience through our subconscious beliefs and um so if there's something out there that's really bugging you and um, you can bet it's some part of your own psyche you haven't really examined and so uh, and then, and then you, when you get triggered, you know, you get upset. Usually, that's nothing to do with what's happening right now. It's something in the current situation. Let's say you're 50 years old and something happens and you get triggered. Well, you know, that triggering, that upset, actually comes back from, comes from your childhood, from unresolved, unresolved needs, and what just happened triggered that memory so we never get upset for the reason that we think we get upset we always get upset from our based on uh, you know the unmet needs from the first 20 odd years of our lives when our when our body mind the reptilian mind brain when the uh, limbic mind the emotional mind and when the neocortex the rational mind were growing and developing we don't have a fully functioning mind brain until we're at 22 or 23 so and, 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 the, and, and the rational mind really doesn't become dominant until we get to seven or eight. So throughout our teenage years, we have a 
we don't have a fully functioning rational mind and that's you know why teenagers do really stupid things like i did but anyhow <laughs> well, you don't have a fully functioning mind whatever uh, so um this is really important to take to think about and because these early life experiences show up later in life and trip us up and so we have to be on guard uh, for for that and then try to uh, overcome the limiting beliefs that we have by forming new synaptic connections because a belief is basically a synaptic connection in the brain and and some of these limiting beliefs are very hard to overcome the best thing you can do is actually bypass it with a new belief which is a more positive belief mm -hmm. and, and 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 that way you can master a situation so when you feel yourself getting upset you can stop it and um, and oh, get over it very quickly because you developed an alternative, more positive belief that you say, okay, yeah, um, I'm just creating this reality. Uh, I, I talk to myself when that happens. When I get triggered, I go, uh, Richard, um, I just noticed that you, um, you're really upset. Um, what's the fear that you've got which is making you upset? What's the unmet need that you have which is making you upset? So that's like, uh, as people say, it's like, standing on the balcony and looking down on the dance floor of your life you, you in a sense you separate from the ego and so something's looking at the ego doing all its drama and <laughs> that for me is the soul and that's when i talk to myself that way it's like i'm talking there's another aspect of myself a more a more compassionate aspect of myself saying you know take a look at what, what you're creating there yeah yeah and i think that's all you know that that whole thing around that self-awareness um that that can lead to self-mastery which to me to be an effective leader you, you need to make that transition in Absolutely. order you can model that for for your people as well yeah i say in my book the new leadership program I say you know if you uh, if you can't lead yourself, there's no way you're going to lead a team. And if you can't lead a team, you can't lead an organization. And it all begins with self-awareness, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, funny enough, I was just going to come on to that, the, the new leadership paradigm, which I believe you wrote in about 2010, 2011. Um, exactly. 2010. Yeah. Actually, it was a, the year I came back to uh, England from... Um, from America, I've been there 24 years, and it was the last year of my mom's life. And I came back to be with her because she was 99, and she oh, was right. in a home. And she said, "I want to, I want you to be here." So I went back to Hull in the north of England, and I didn't know anybody. So I, you know, for 10 months, I just visited my mom every day and wrote a new leadership paradigm. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and that's been described as a learning system for 21st century leaders. Would you like to explain a little bit more about that? Well, I think it's because it gets into the ego-soul dynamics of leadership um, or actually of um, growth and development. And I think that was the first book where I really began to set out the stages of psychological development and, um, and set up... Uh, a way to I wrote a whole you know, chapters on leading self, leading a team, leading an organization, and leading in society. And so that's like half the book. It's like probably 150, 200 pages on on that piece. Um, and in, in the earlier part, I I present my theory and my understanding. Um, 
but it comes back to it comes back to what we've just been talking about is about understanding who you are how you identify um i just put out um, my first facebook um uh, live uh, broadcast um from the Barrett academy two three weeks ago and and it was on the topic of um uh, i called it the, uh, becoming a global citizen but what it was actually about was about identity our sense of identity which i think is the central issue at practically every glo every global issue the central problem is that we don't identify with a large enough group in order to solve the problems we mm -hmm. the groups we identify with are, are are small and therefore separate and if we could get to a larger sense of identity we could overcome all of these issues but that is i think a really important aspect of looking at leadership saying well who am i really that's yeah, yeah. what i look at in that yeah, book yeah and, and and if you're leading change then it's really important to understand the dynamics of all that because um having a a big enough cohort that you can make a difference is really important uh, some, some recent research by, by an academic in, uh, in Sweden uh, around young people's attitude to climate change um, suggests that one of the big roadblocks is the fact that they feel that their individual efforts don't make a big enough difference. Whereas when they come together and do things as a community, then they feel they really are making a difference. So as a leader, you need to mobilise sufficient people that they yeah. get the sense that we're in it together. Yeah, the, I, I love. I don't know if you've seen that video of this guy on a hillside who was some music playing in the background, and he starts dancing all on his own. And um, and, and then, uh, well, another fella comes up and joins him, and they're all the, the pair of them are dancing. Well, he's the first follower, and then, and then it's just like constant rush of people to these two, and they're all dancing on the hillside. And it's like, okay, so in a way, here is a person who, this person originally who was dancing on the hillside was a leader because he was doing something that other people wanted to do, but hadn't thought, they hadn't thought about it. And so then they saw him and they said, oh, we're going to join him. So he didn't have an aspiration to be a leader. And that often happens, you know, um, people speak from their soul or do something from the self-expression from a deep level and then other people are attracted and for me that's what makes a leader it's not a somebody in the organization who who's you know who's in the in the third level of hierarchy down and gets promoted to the top hierarchy no that's not a leader to me that's just that's old-fashioned old paradigm leadership idea you know a true leader is somebody who attracts people who want to follow because they're so inspired by what this person is doing that they they want to be part of it and they resonate with that person so, so how can this new leadership paradigm work within existing organizations well and what i say uh, is i was just talking about this this morning uh, what i've been saying all along is that you that if you have a leadership development program for the you know the really smart people um uh, what do you call them fast track people mm -hmm. you know forget it i mean 
everybody needs to be able to individuate and self-actualize. You need a you need a you need a a program that allows everybody in the organization to meet the needs of the stage of psychological de development that they're at. And so, okay, have a bit of a program for the for, for the really excellent people, but but you're missing the point if you don't involve everybody because you've got potential leaders who don't, who you would never have considered because they don't have the right background. But here they've, they blossom because they learn how to individuate, they learn how to self-actualize and bam, you know, you've got a new leader who had just been in the background. And, and so I think that so much talent, potential talent is wasted. Not only that, um, if you want people in your organization to be um, loyal or go, let's go beyond that, let's say um, high performance, let's even go beyond that, so they're very engaged. And what you have to do is you've got to be able to meet the needs of the stage of psychological development there are. And that's what I show in the new leadership paradigm. is that dif different people at different age groups have different needs, uh, different tasks at each stage. And if you in the organization can recognize that, then, uh, and, you, uh, and you're able to respond to the needs of the people at that stage of development, they will love you to bits. And, um, and that's, you know, that led me to write the book Evolutionary Coaching, which again looks at the stages of psychological development and says, uh, you know, I says evolutionary coaching is not a book for, about coaching. It's about the framework of human development. You need to understand if you're working with somebody, depending on where they are in terms of their psychological development, they will have different needs. And you need, as a coach, you need to know that. It's fundamental that you know what uh, stage of development they're at because then you can really help them. But without that knowledge, um, so anyhow, to go back to your question, yeah, I think the way that we organize our organization, particularly our leadership development programs, is very, very old paradigm at the moment. Yeah, and I think the significant point that you make there is about helping people at their individual stage of development. And one of the things which I think is quite difficult to address sometimes is when the organizational design is geared to people who are at a particular stage and others who are at an earlier stage of their development um, are not actually catered for, which, which mm. I think is a, a, real, um, a real issue that needs to be addressed because I think there's, uh, th there are two things. First of all, if, if everybody is at the same level, there's no real diversity anyway um, because uh, you need as an organisation to be able to address customers that are at different levels of their, their development as well. So I, I think you need to have that diversity within the organization. Um, but the other thing is, I, I also feel that we have a bit of a duty to develop those people and give them the opportunity to grow. Whereas if we just say, right, well, we're not going to cater for you, they tend to become disenfranchised and, and leave, or worse still, become disenfranchised and stay. Um, yeah. So, I you know, I, I think that we need to adopt an inclusive approach where we can help people at, at different levels. I think it's necessary to add in our conversation here that um, I want to use a, a term that my friend Neil Hawkes, uh, who's in the education field, he calls it, he's got a book called The Inner Curriculum. 
and, and it was for, for children and, and teenagers. But I think that's the key. You see, you know, there's the, there's the inner curriculum for a leader and there's the outer curriculum. So the outer curriculum, he can build with experience and going to Harvard University or whatever. That's fact-based stuff in the material world. But the inner curriculum is actually what's most important. And that's what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, th I think that's one of the, the keys that um, you alluded to earlier around the, um, the, the soft stuff is, is hard. And I, I think there's, there's a hard way to get where you want and there's an easy way to get where, you, get, where, get where you want. The trouble with the easy way is that it takes a lot longer and quite often you don't get where you want anyway because you're, you're not doing the work that you need to get there. Um, and I've seen that happen time and again, where people set goals and they consistently don't achieve them because they're not actually changing what they're not what they're doing. They're not actually developing and growing to be able to be the person that can actually achieve those goals. So um, in the end, it comes down to the only real way is the hard way. <laughs> you can discover it now or you can discover it later. So uh, it's interesting. I've been... Um want to mention this is this uh it's not a plug for me but it's a plug for something i've been helping with uh, there is a new app out called q do's q d o o z um which is uh, an app for building soft skills and um it is uh it's launched and um it's a big hole in the market because when people come out of university or, or uh, uh, or master's degree in business, they haven't got, they don't teach them the soft skills. And so there's big demand for young people to learn soft skills in order to be really successful. And this, um, this app, QDOs, I think is, is a fantastic idea. And uh, I've been, so I've been supporting that uh, a little bit over the past month or so. Yeah, and we've known for a long time, Richard, that um, success is not linked to intellectual capability, which is why the whole idea of emotional intelligence was evolved to, to look at that, uh, what it was that distinguished people who were successful against those that weren't. And it was their ability to control their emotions and manage relationships that was the differentiator. So why is it that we don't teach this stuff? Why is it we teach them all the hard skills, which they can learn for themselves quite easily? Uh, and then um, the, the important stuff is left to chance. Well, I think, I think it is happening. I mean, I think there are a lot of universities that do teach uh, emotional, uh, to the extent you can teach emotional intelligence, you can't you know it has to be experientially learned that's the key and actually there's quite a lot of uh, you know the, my work on the seven levels of consciousness uh the seven uh the uh, and using that as a model and a tool in organization is taught in quite a number of universities now so um i i think it's wrong to say that it's not happening but it's um not yet gained sufficient momentum to be a universal part of um, most uh, leadership programs as uh, developed by universities. Mm -hmm. I, I see that universities are, tend to think about academic things, uh, whereas this whole topic of psychology, 
is so fundamental to who we are. Um, and I wrote a book called A New Leadership Paradigm, sorry, A New Psychology of Human Wellbeing, because I realized that psychology had become scientific. You see, in the scientific paradigm, there is no God, there is no soul, there's no life after death, there are no other, there are no other um, dimensions of existence. Whereas up to the scientific cosmology coming along, we had religions where, the, where they had cosmologies which had all of that. Then after science, so we have got new cosmologies like spirituality and solar awareness. Again, where there's a, this deeper connection to whatever you want to consider the divine creator, provider, or whatever, you know, religion or linked to that other world, before science came along, it was an external God. And then after science, it became an internal God. And, uh, be and because, my point here is that because academia is tries so hard to be scientific it's missing these deeper stuff so if it does psychology it does psychology in a behavioral way it doesn't get down to what i call the real stuff what's going on at the ego level what's going on at the soul level and what the hell are you what's the battle that's being fought out in your life between these two psychic entities Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned just now the seven stages of consciousness. So could you run through a little bit more uh, what that, that's about and how people evolve um, and so, yeah, I, I, leadership as well? Yes. So I, and this applies to every human being and the seven stages of psychological development. And um, so we grow in stages and we, uh, we operate at levels. So you might be at stage uh, four which is the individuating stage in your late 20s and early 30s but you lose um your job um and uh somehow you make bad investments and you finish up with no money and so now you drop down to the surviving level of consciousness you don't go down to the surviving stage of development you go you go to the surviving level of consciousness. We grow in stages and we operate at levels. So I'm going to talk about stages now. So quick, very briefly. Um, in fact, I just did a Facebook Live on this very topic uh, last Friday. Um, you can find it on, on my Facebook page uh, um, and then the Barrett Academy. Um, so the, the first stage is surviving. It's really from the moment you're conceived in the womb through to age 18 months. And uh, you, what is dominant at that point in time is your reptilian mind, brain, your body mind, and really it's all about surviving. And in the back, in, meanwhile, in the background, your emotional mind, the limbic mind, brain is growing and developing and it becomes dominant around 18 months. So now the body mind becomes the subconscious of the, of the, limb, of the emotional mind. And that is dominant until around age of um, seven or eight. So, this first stage is surviving. The second stage is conforming because we need to be able to fit in in order to feel safe. So then we get to about eight and then the, the uh, neocortex, the rational mind becomes dominant. It's been developing in the background. Now it becomes dominant and stays dominant for the rest of our lives. But actually it's still growing and developing until we get to about 22. And so these three stages, surviving, conforming, and differentiating are stages when uh, the mind is in uh, is uh, evolving. Um, it's, I call it emergent learning, mm -hmm. and so 
because you've never because you've never been in that situation before you're learning from by your experiences how to be in the world and of course if you if you're in a difficult situation or you have uncaring parents you learn all sorts of beliefs about being in the world which are not won't support you later on mm -hmm. so then we get to you know we get to about the 22 23 and then we move into what's called the individuating stage where it's really about finding freedom and autonomy to be who you are now most people on the planet never get to that stage of development um just one second most people on the planet never get to that stage because they um they either live in a repressive regime where freedom and autonomy like north korea you, you won't find anybody who's individuated in North Korea. In the former USSR, you got locked up if you were a free thinker. So that individuating stage is blocked by anybody in a repressive regime. It's also blocked for anybody who grew up in difficult circumstances, learned a difficulty getting their survival, safety, and security needs met, and developed limiting beliefs about doing that. And now, the stuck in the belief that they, they don't have enough, they're not loved enough, and they're not enough, and they can't move it through the individuating state. There's a very famous president of a big country in North America who is like that. <laughs> Mentioning no names. And no names mentioned. And um, so then after the individuating stage, which comes, uh, uh, if you successfully get through there, um, Toward the late 30s and 40s, you move into that self-actualizing stage that I mentioned earlier. And this is when you begin to feel the, the impulse of your soul, the impulse to uh, not make a difference at this stage, the impulse to find meaning and purpose in your life. Um, at least that's the way the ego describes it. The soul knows its meaning and purpose. So for the soul, it's just self-expression. And then in, we start in the 50s and we're into the integrating stage where it's about making a difference. But for the soul, that's about um, connecting. Because if you can't connect, there's no way you can make a difference. And that's where the emotional intelligence becomes really important. And then in the 60s, uh, you know, when you get to my age and maybe yours. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> it's, it's about service. It's about, it's not about, it's about contribution. We want to make a contribution. And that's all we want to do. You know, we, we, we just want to contribute. We want to contribute what we've learned. And, uh, and, and, it, and it doesn't have to be big. Like my mother lived to be 100. And she was the cleaner at the local Methodist chapel. And she arranged the flowers for funerals and for weddings. And she did that till she was 85. Mm -hmm. and, and she, that was her contribution. And so she never grew old. I mean, she had all her mental faculties until the last year of her life. And because she was living her aspect of soul consciousness, which was contribution, but in a very small, in a local community. And, and it doesn't matter how big or small. It's, the question is, are you, are you expressing yourself? Are you connecting with others? And are you making a contribution? That's the key to life from 40 onwards, basically. So contribution, yeah, that, that is huge. And we've seen so much research recently into how making a contribution contributes to well-being. It improves recovery rates from severe trauma, from um, chronic illness. Uh, and the idea that we actually focus beyond ourselves 
actually takes that attention away from the chronic ailments that we're suffering from because it, we're not we're not focusing on that anymore not only that you know uh, when you get <laughs> when you fully explore the cosmology of these highest uh, ways of being you begin to realize that actually at some level energetic level we're all one so when i when, when i give to you i'm giving to another aspect of myself in other words i'm self-love mm -hmm. i mean it looks like altruism but actually i don't think there is anything like altruism it's really if you if you if you move to that higher understanding altruism is all about you know loving another aspect of yourself in a sense because we're all connected at some higher energetic level so the that's an explanation of how it works on an individual level. But the work you've done is to apply that kind of thinking to uh, leadership development and also to uh, organisational development and, and levels oh. of consciousness of organisations. Um, and part of that process, my understanding is, is that some of the earlier stages are fairly, fairly common and then you reach a point where using your existing thinking you can go no further and therefore you have to change your way of thinking. Before you change your way of being. So, so perhaps you'd like to explain a little bit about um, that kind of process and how it works in organizations. So, yeah, so um, the culture of an organization uh, is a reflection of the leadership consciousness. And uh, so who you are as a leader is actually reflected in the culture. And when the leader changes, the culture changes. I see it all the time. We map, we measure leadership values we and we measure the, the consciousness or the values of organizations and you can see there's always a direct link between the levels of consciousness of the leader and the levels of consciousness of the organization so um, next point really so the so so the the culture of the organization is a reflection of leadership consciousness if you wanted so organizations actually don't transform people transform mm -hmm. so if you want to transform the culture of an organization you know the leaders have to change i mean that you can't you can't have a cultural transformation without a, either the leaders changing or a change of leader mm -hmm. basically and that's why failing companies bring in an outside an outsider generally uh, to manage whereas companies that are successful um, will promote one from within somebody who's been living in that culture and understands that culture and will continue that type of leadership hmm. so funda and, and I think this uh, and this is obviously the same in, in, in nations which are autocratic regimes where the leader the level of consciousness of the leader is reflected in the regime because he, he or she won't allow anyone. He's, you know, uh, women never get, women are much cleverer than we are and they understand. I mean, just look at news, the lady who's running New Zealand. I mean, God, yeah. fantastic, unbelievable. Let's have more of that, please. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so the, and, and in many ways, uh, an organization is an autocratic regime. It's not a democracy. And so, you know, the, the level of conscious leader uh, in an organization is very much uh, like, like in, in, a, in, in a country. 
uh, you know, it follows and the level of consciousness of the nation, the level of consciousness of the organization is basically a reflection of the leader's consciousness. Now, so here I'm speaking about authoritarian leaders, so a more enlightened leader um, would be, have reached a, a stage of development, which I'm now I'm linking to Keegan's work, the socialized mind, the self-authoring mind, and the self-transforming mind. The self-transforming mind is a high level of consciousness where you realize um, that uh, you don't look at the world through your belief system as in the self-authoring mind. You look at it, you look at it through your belief system, but you are, allow yourself to see other people looking at the world differently and say, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I, could, I, could, I could look at the world that way too. I could accommodate that in my belief system. And that's the self-transforming mind. Now, to be, a, to be a really good leader, you need a self-transforming mind. It's, um, because otherwise, you, you know, you're going to go down, this is it. This is the right way. Yeah. Sorry, we're, not do we're doing it my way or the highway. Yeah. You know, that doesn't work these days. And I think that, to me, that's one of the keys is get, getting to that point where a leader is able to hold two different viewpoints at the same time yeah. uh, and not to necessarily judge either one of them as being, exactly. being right or wrong. So, exactly. In fact, I had a personal experience of this very recently where... Um, you know, the, need, the leader must be able to be impartial, especially when you've got two, two people in the organization with different points of view or different experiences or different interpretations of what happened. And, and so the, it needs to be impartial and get, and get to the bottom of it. As soon as the leader stops being impartial, um, it, it doesn't work. You know, the leader has to be able to have this balance between uh, uh, between understanding what they believe is necessary, understanding what other people believe is necessary, and being able to meld the two together. You know, it's a bit like, <laughs> well, it's a bit not like that. I was sorry, I was going to say something that is not quite true. Okay, carry on. Yes, yeah, so... so, so. <laughs> That, that's the, the idea of the um, what Jim Collins calls the level five leader, the the hum, humble leader who is able to take on board other people's ideas and say, "Yes, you know better than me." Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, absolutely. So, um, so he, what that leader does, he uses the collective he has the collective intelligence at his disposal. Tell me what your thoughts are, Richard, on the current move. It seems to be quite a strong trend at the moment towards self-managing organisations and self-managing teams. Very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talk a lot about this uh, teal organisation. and um, it's a, it is, I've talked to people who've tried to do it. Some have done it, some haven't. It demands a high level of individuation, that fourth stage of psychological development. You have to, if you have leaders who haven't gone through the individuating stage and into the self-actualizing stage, this self-managing thing doesn't work because it's all about me, it's not about us. Mm -hmm. And so 
if there are very few organizations, I believe, that are uh, either ready for this or actually can do it. And the larger the organization, the more difficult it is. It's a lot easier in a small organization of researchers or highly intelligent people because they will have, may have individuated in the self-actualized. And, and, and the success story that I know, I mean, is one of a university that did this. And it was very, very hard for them to do it because people wanted to bring all of the problems to the leader. Mm-hmm. And the leader said, no, no, in this system, everybody's accountable. Stop bringing me your problems. Yeah, bring me some Figure it out. <laughs> yeah, and out. people go, ah, now they're on the line because they have to be accountable. You see a huge amount of accountability in a self-organizing team or self-organizing group um, and a huge amount of cooperation and coordination. You know, managers are just not up to it. They're just not ready for it. So it's very difficult, I say. Not impossible um, and uh, still worth trying. Um, But only worth trying if you're going to support these people in a process like we talked earlier of uh, self-growth. That's why I say leading self is so important at the beginning because if you can get people into that mode, then they can go into this self-organizing. Way. But if, you, if, you, if you're just focusing on the top 20 in the organization or the top 50 or the top 100 and you're ignoring everybody else, then you're never going to have a self-organizing organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You need to train from the bottom upwards almost. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, what I've noticed and... and what you've said then really makes a lot of sense in terms of the organizations that I've seen that have been more successful at transitioning to self-organization have been values-driven, purpose-driven organizations, which by nature people are tuned into those higher conscious um, levels of thinking rather than purely just process-driven where you go and you just do a job and there's, there's no real, um, there's really not such a human dimension to what they're doing. No, you need to have a shared vision if you're a self-organizer and, and the people you work with need to have a sense of shared mission. So, you know, I might be in one department, you might be in another and our mission in that department will be to support the shared vision and we share the vision, but in our departments we have, you know, slightly different mission. But we, we need, everybody needs to understand that and understand what, what is our mission, what is your mission, what's the vision, how, what brings us together. And only then, only then can you uh, rely on the team members, the team leaders, the managers, and the upper echelon of leaders to uh, all be working in the same direction. That's what it takes. Mm-hmm. Not easy at all, not easy. Yeah. You've written a book called The Values Driven Organization. So right. how does that compare to what you described as a, a teal organization? Uh, uh, very largely, yeah. Um, okay, so I wrote Liberating the Corporate Soul in 1997, and then I did another Building a Visionary Organization in 2005. Then I did The Values Driven Organization and then I did an update of the value-driven organization just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it very much aligns with everything that we've been talking about. And then you put that next to the book, New Leadership Paradigm, and fold it all together. And that actually is 
pretty much everything I know about how to uh, how to build a very uh, highly successful organization. Um, because uh, measurement, and that's where I've spent most of you know a lot of my last twenty years focusing on measurement really matters, and it, and you know we've never really had until I developed the cultural transformation tools. We never really had a measurement instrument that looked at the soft stuff in a in a very highly sophisticated way, and so um, doing cultural values assessment, doing leadership values assessment, but. Um, is a, is a brilliant way to support a values-driven organization and to support this uh, self-organizing type of organization. Because you've got the metrics of that, you know, the, the inner metrics rather than the outer metrics. I mean, I used to say, and in fact it's still true, that if you're just looking at, um, you know, the bottom line um, and profits, it's like driving a car and the only instrumentation you have is a rear view mirror because all of that is information about the past. You need information about the present. And, and the only way to do that is to get information around how are people thinking, how are they feeling, what values do they see in the organization, what values would they like to see in the organization. So you're actually measuring, you're measuring the degree of harmony and the degree of um, contentment or, uh, in the organization. It's more than that. It's, a, it's the degree of cohesiveness exactly. in the organization. That's the key. Uh, cohesiveness is the key. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been talking about, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that for, for the organization to achieve its aims, it needs to have a very clear sense of purpose. And then the metrics need to be actually around how they are doing on delivering their sense of purpose um, rather than on what short-term profits they're making uh, i mean to me yeah. those are secondary metrics because absolutely if you do everything else right then that will happen you do need to, i think there's this thing about key performance indicators yeah. and to me the most important thing about key performance indicators is that they are just a reflection of your performance. They are not the performance itself. So you shouldn't be focusing on the key performance indicators themselves, but on actually performing in those key areas. Uh, and I think that's the distinction that a lot of people fail to make, uh, is they look at the numbers and they think, how can we improve the numbers, rather than looking at how can they improve their performance for the sake of improving performance. Because the motivation to achieve a quality performance is very different to the motivation to increase your numbers. You, there's not really very much in the way of emotional attachment to, if, if I were to say to my people, uh, yeah, great set of numbers, we need to just get an extra 0.2% on, on, on our margins and we'll be really doing well. And it's like, well, what does that mean? And what, what's the impact of that? on me in the work that I do. Whereas if you look at what's driving the margins, then you define how people perform and what is needed of them in order to achieve those increases in margins, then people can relate to that. Yep, I agree with Whether that. it's improved process or um, improved quality so that um, they get, get reduced returns rates, things like that. Um, 
it's, it's looking at the thing holistically and dynamically rather than just as a set of numbers. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So um, you've been, you, you mentioned that you've started the Barrett Academy for the Advancement of Human Values last right. year. Uh, so I'd, I'd really like to learn a little bit more about um, what that's all about. Yeah, um, well, uh, Barrett Values Centre continues to focus on organisational measurement and uh, organisational transformation. Uh, and I wanted to bring a, a larger perspective to the organisation by uh, and, and focus on future in a sense, so that we could um, look at the deep, the deeper personal transformation. I call it either soul dynamics, and uh, this larger, larger societal transformation. Because many of the tools we have in the Barrett Value Centre are actually can be used in those two domains. Um, they're not known for that and I wanted to build that out so that we could take advantage of that uh, niche if you like uh, which nobody else is uh, think, working on um, so I created the academy to do that so um, it's, uh, it's, it's there are various things on there which are reflect on my new thinking for example the global consciousness indicators uh, mapped to the consciousness 145 nations and we did that in 2016 uh, in 2017 with 2016 data and we just done it in fact i'm working on it right now just got the results for 2018 right. and so we now got we can see and i'm going to publish this quite soon which nations are moving up in consciousness and which nations are moving down and, and why they're moving up and down that's one aspect of the academy another aspect of the academy is this whole idea of ego soul dynamics at a personal level uh, next year i'm hoping to create the institute for developmental psychology and ego soul dynamics which i which is built around my book a new uh, a new psychology of human well-being which brings a new way of looking at psychology that integrates spirituality science and psychology and that, that cosmology that there I'm talking about actually fits into what I'm talking about. The other piece of work I'm doing, which is on world views, it's um, really a very a deeper and bigger extension of what was known as spiral dynamics. Um, and um, I uh, and I'm actually working on that book this very minute, um, and it's coming along very nicely. I should have it out by the autumn. Um, and uh, in that uh, book, I look at um, the worldviews of nations and I link it to the global consciousness indicators. And, and so, you, uh, so I'm actually measuring, I'm actually measuring, I found a way to look at worldviews. Um, and we can actually measure to what extent a nation or a group is ready to move to a new worldview or regress um, through the... Um, doing national values assessments where we measure cultural entropy. Cultural entropy is the degree of dysfunction in the system. Mm -hmm. And when you have a high degree of dysfunction in the system, it means that people are dissatisfied. And so that is a, that's indicative of a, a change wanting to happen, either a change downwards to be more conservative or a change upwards to be more liberal. Um, anyhow, these are just some of the aspects um, and also on that website, I, I'm trying to put up pieces uh, whenever I got time, which comment on 
societal trends, what's going on in different parts of the world. I've neglected that a little bit because I've been working on my book. Um, and then the new thing that I started the, four weeks ago was, um, actually three weeks ago, was a Facebook Live for the mm -hmm. Barrett Academy. And uh, I talked about the first session was on who am I becoming a global citizen. It was all about identity. And then the, the last session last Friday was on about um, why am I here, the stages of psychological development. And then two weeks from now, I'm going to be doing talking about levels of consciousness that we spoke about earlier. And every two weeks, I'll do something. Um, so that's the academy, basically, in a nutshell. It's exploring and incubating new ideas that um, will lead to uh, growth and development at an individual level, at a societal level, and hopefully also at an organizational level. Cool. So um, if, if somebody wanted to find out more about you and your work, where, where would be the best place for them to go? Well, the website uh, www.barrettacademy.com will take you to uh, the website. It takes you actually to all my videos, um, blogs, uh, podcasts um, and then you can click on another link which takes you to the main website or same website uh, www.aahv.global aahv.global same website just two different directions to get in right. there okay super well thank you very much richard that's been an absolute delight and really interesting and and some fascinating perspectives looking way beyond just the narrow focus of leadership, but how it impacts on organizations and how we conduct ourselves as human beings. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity to share. Um, I, I've enjoyed it very much. Well, I think you'll agree, Richard is doing some pretty amazing and deep stuff. During the course of our discussion, he signposted you to some of his resources, and I'd also recommend you check out his books. As I've mentioned, my first and still my favourite was Liberating the Corporate Soul, but every one is a gem. Now it's time to look ahead to the final episode in the series, when I'll be with Ross Hall, talking about the concept of weaving leadership, which brings together many of the leadership ideas we've discussed in these first seven episodes. Join me then. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the topics raised in this podcast, or if you'd like to discuss other aspects of leadership development and business strategy, just send an email to podcast at ukleadershipacademy.com. I look forward to hearing from you.